We're continuing on with the series that we're in called Shaken But Not Stirred. And, and I kind of, you, you know, how do you say that last song? It, it kind of just reminds me of that kind of slide we have up there. The storm that goes on around us when, when we see Jesus, in a sense, almost out there on the water. Well, we've been kind of dealing with this idea how our faith must be real, that it must allow us to get through these moments when the storm hits our life. All of us have had times when, when we've been challenged in our faith, when we've been challenged in our life, when we have to sit there and we're looking and we're saying, God, what's going on? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And we began to look at it and we began to deal with this idea that if we're going to want a faith that is going to last, if we want a faith that works, that helps us stand in the tough times, there has to be some things that we need in our life. And we began to deal with the whole idea of how we need to stop and just recognize God as present in the middle of our storms. Last two weeks, Todd has been here and he's began to deal with some really interesting ideas. In fact, I think where he's come from and where he's beginning to deal with has really kind of helped began to focus where we are. That faith is more than just simply a belief system. It has to be something that is lived out. It can't simply be, in a sense, a, a lucky charm that we tag onto our life, but that faith must be something that is practical, that is lived out within our lives. He then went on last week to deal with this whole idea that faith must be something that we give of God even when we don't have a lot. We take what we do have and we give it to him. How God begins to fill up the inadequacies of our life. But there's more to it. Faith is not something that we're going to actually cover in six weeks. As much as I would like to be able to say, you can have faith in six weeks. Let me tell you, faith is a lifelong journey. But here, here's one of the things. As we begin to look at faith, faith is something that you cannot do by yourself. Okay, let me explain. I have always hated school. I bet you didn't know that about me, did you? I have a personality that is a little ADD, okay? I don't sit still very well. I, I love to read. I love learning stuff. I, I absolutely, I, I love being able to get down and you can put certain things in front of me and I just, I love it. But put me in a seat and with a teacher trying to lecture at me for an hour. And you know what I do? I get this glazed over look that just kind of, it's like just sort of. Shh. And I shut off. I can't, I can't do it. I, I, you know, 1956, here's what happened. And I, and I just don't, I, I don't, the, I need the story behind it. I don't want the facts. I want to know the story. What led up to it? What caused it? I want to know. Is this something that could happen again? And I get excited, but I don't sit well with lectures. And so when I graduated from high school, I only did it because basically my mom and dad drove me to do it. I mean, they forced me to do it. And you're going to graduate because if you don't graduate, we're going to beat you. Okay, they didn't quite say it like that, but that's kind of the way I felt that they were saying. So I got through high school and when I got through high school, I was done. I didn't want to go back to college. I, didn't, I, I was done with school. I hated school. But my dad had a rule in our house, and, he, and partly because my dad was a missionary, and, and back in the day, any missionary kid could get a scholarship to go to university with, 
with where he was from. And so my dad said, look, you have to do at least one year of university. If you don't want to go back after that, that's fine, but you have got to do one year. And so I went for a year and I did university for a year, sort of. Now I say sort of because I was there physically, but that's all I was. I, I worked 40 hours a week. I'd rather work than, than go to classes. And as I got my year done, I kind of half flunked through most of those classes. And the ones I didn't flunk, I should have flunked because it wasn't pretty. And I did my year and I went back. And for another year, I floundered. I floundered. I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, what does a person do who doesn't have a college education? I know there was some, I wanted to get into woodworking. I love cabinetry and I love cabinet building. And I did some of that for a while when I was in high school. And I thought, I'll just, I'll do that. But I never felt comfortable with it. And finally, after a year being home, I said, you know what? I got to do something with my life. And, and I've Never had heard of PCC, but someone had, I saw this little advertisement, I said, I'm going to PCC, it's by the beach. I mean, who doesn't want to go by the beach, right? And so I came to PCC not knowing anything about it, and I survived it somehow. All this to say that when I was in PCC, I came with a, you know what I'll do? I'm going to get a youth ministry degree with an emphasis in physical education. I mean, why not? What was I going to do with it? I didn't have a clue. But when I was in my first year of youth ministry degree, I came across a professor who changed everything for me. His name is Dr. Johnson. Now, he's no longer teaching over at PCC, but at the time, he was teaching at PCC, and he had, he had done a lot of youth ministry and stuff, but, but he, was, he was up I don't know how old he was. I think he was in his 50s. He seemed ancient at the time, and he was probably really only in his 40s, but, but he seemed ancient, so he was probably in his 50s because I'm in my late 40s, and so that can't be ancient anymore. But Dr. Johnson was everything a professor was not supposed to be. He was short. He wore goofy glasses. I mean, they really weren't that goofy, but at the time, I mean, he was not the coolest guy he was not the coolest professor around. In fact, he was kind of, when professors go, he was kind of silly. He was short, wore goofy glasses. He kind of talked in a higher voice. Now, not only that, but when he talked, he was always excited. I mean, he, he talked with his hands and he was always, and he would kind of bounce around. He was a little hyperactive. And for someone who was a little hyperactive and a guy who just thoroughly enjoyed it, even up into his 40s, who obviously was not the scholarly type. In fact, he really was the scholarly type. He had more degrees behind his name and had studied more than never could I ever get to a place where Dr. Johnson was. But at the time, it's just this little thing clicked in my mind where this guy enjoying it, he loves it. Obviously, he can't sit still either, and yet he's done it. And Dr. Johnson, for a lot of the people who took his class, really struggled with his class because he was just out there and all over the place, and I thought he was fantastic. For me, Dr. Johnson proved that a person who was a little hyperactive and a little bit goofy and a little bit crazy and a little bit nuts could actually be involved in ministry and love it. They could make it through college with fine 
And for me, it changed everything. In your life and in my life, there have been people who have stepped in at a certain time, at a certain place, at a certain moment, and have pushed us and have nudged us. They have encouraged us. They have inspired us. In fact, most of you can go back through your school years and say there was a teacher who changed it all for me. There was a Miss so-and-so, and and she loved Shakespeare so much. And I mean, I hated Shakespeare, and yet she could quote Shakespeare in such a way that it seemed to come alive. And I mean, it was fun. Or you might have had a Mr. So-and-so who was into astronomy, and he invited you over to look up through his little telescope, and, and the things that he would tell you just kind of blew your mind, and it changed the direction and the course of your life. Some of you may not have actually found that person yet, but he's out there and you know they're out there and maybe you found that person on YouTube. I mean, there are enough people out there who are so out there with some amazing ideas. But most of us have had that person who has stepped in at a right time, at a right place, and has turned our lives around or at least helped push us in a certain direction. Our faith is no different. When it comes to faith, when it comes to following Jesus Christ, there is usually someone in the background who has pushed, who has prodded, who has encouraged, who has inspired, and has helped hold your faith together. In fact, today, I want to look at three people, and you're going to have to forgive me if I move a little bit faster because really my note says I shouldn't get out of here until about, oh, let's just say 11.15, and I'm trying not to do that. So if I talk a little bit fast, it's just because I don't want to keep you that long. Okay, I'm lying. I would like to keep you that long, but I won't, okay? But I want to look through the Scriptures, and I want to talk about a guy that we look at who had three guys who stepped into his life at the right time and encouraged him, pushed him, prodded him. And because of these three guys, he changed the world. In the book of Acts, we begin to read about a guy by the name of Saul. Saul, we know, was a guy who basically, the way we understand church today, the way we understand the theology of how Christ came, a lot of it has to do with because Saul, or Paul, wrote approximately the vast majority of the little books of the New Testament. He wrote the book of Romans, which really helps lay out and and explain to us this idea of how God came and died for us. And it wasn't about anything that we could do, but simply about our faith and trust in him. That that was the guy by the name of Paul. Paul was this guy who wrote the book to Corinthians to a church that had kind of gotten so messed up and so many problems. And he began to stop and say, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what your life should look like. You shouldn't be living this way. Here's a better way to live. And he began to push and to prod. And a lot of the way that we live our lives and the way that we do church today is down to one man by the name of Paul. Yet Paul in his life had the right people who stepped in at the right time 
and changed his faith walk totally. Now, to help us understand how this all started, after Jesus Christ died and he rose again and then he left, the early disciples began to totally, they were congregated in the city of Jerusalem. Those 12 disciples, and then there was the group that met in the upper room, the 144, and, the, and they just, they, they began to multiply, but it stayed in Jerusalem, and these early disciples were so excited. In fact, Jesus had been so out there, he hadn't hidden himself after he rose from the dead, that what happened is, is that there had been so many people that saw him, the disciples were so I mean, excited because they knew the one who died and rose again, they couldn't shut up. And literally in the city of Jerusalem, the early church, or they were known as the people of the way, it exploded. We know that within the first few weeks that literally thousands became followers of Jesus Christ. They had seen him. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him after he had been resurrected from the dead. It was out there. In fact, they knew somebody. If they didn't know it personally, they knew someone. And it was just out there. And Paul says, look, if you, want to, if you don't believe us, you can talk to all these people. It's just out there. And it just spread like a fire throughout the city of Jerusalem. The only problem is, is that the religious leaders and the political leaders did not like it. They thought this was going to upset the political balance. They thought this was going to upset the, the religious balance. It was, they were worried that Rome was going to get a wind of something, that there was going to be some kind of a backlash, and that Rome would come back through and remove some of the freedoms that they had given to the city of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders didn't like it because they thought it was blasphemy that to say that there's a guy by the name of Jesus who was God. This isn't going to work. And so what they did is they hired a young man by the name of Saul to kind of see if they could put a, a lid on it. Now, Saul at the time was a young Pharisee who was an up and coming. He had been trained by what we know is, is by a teacher by the name of Gamaliel, who was, in a sense, he was the top religious teacher of his day. And Saul had ambition. Saul wanted to be a somebody. He didn't want to stop and just be a Pharisee who sat there. He was a guy with ambition. And so when they wanted someone to kind of see if they could quiet down the masses, this new Jesus, this new movement called the way, they put Paul or Saul on the case. So Saul came in and he started to try to quiet the situation. He began to ban these Jesus followers from the temple. No, no, you can't come to the temple. You don't have a place here. You're saying that there was a guy by the name of Jesus. No, you can't come. You're expelled. But that wasn't enough because these people kept, well, it doesn't matter because we don't need a temple to follow Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to a temple to talk to him. And so they began, he began to arrest him and put him on Charles, on bring up charges of blasphemy and to stop and to have them imprisoned. And, and that wasn't working. So he began to stop and have their properties confiscated. And in, it just seemed like every time he would stomp on it, it would push it out. And he, so he'd stomp over here and it would push it out. 
Saul got so frustrated that he thought they needed to make a really public example of someone to say, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, things are going to get tough for you and you need to understand this. And so he had a young guy who was also an up and coming young fellow by the name of Stephen arrested. They brought him up on charges of blaspheming. And Stephen sat there and he said, guys, what are you doing? You know what happened. You know about this guy by the name of Jesus. You were there. You saw it too. Why are you trying to stop this? You know that he was dead. You know that he rose from the dead. You know that he was even prophesied. You know the scriptures better than anyone else. What are you doing? And it got so heated and they were so upset and they were so like, how dare you accuse us of being the one to put this Jesus to death? How dare you claim that he was the son of God? This is wrong and we're not going to listen to it anymore. In fact, I want to read to you um, how it's recorded for us. In Acts chapter 7, verses 57 through 58, here's what we read. Then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They were so angry with this young Stephen that he was so had the nerve to tell them that, that they were to blame, that they were being hard-hearted because they were, they were not even looking at the one. They knew they saw Jesus themselves. And this is what they said. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats And they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, when it says they took off their coats and they laid them down at a young man by the name of Saul, this is not to say that Saul was such a nobody that he was just looking after their garments because he was a nobody. What they're telling us is that Saul was the guy who's saying, I put my hand up, I'm the one who's taking responsibility for this guy's death. I am the guy... I will look after your stuff. I will be the one who will stand up and defend you if they try to accuse you of murder. This is on me, guys. Go for it. Stephen's message, though. When Stephen sat and he talked to the Pharisees, when he stopped and he sat and argued with those who said, how dare you claim him to be the Son of God. We know that that message must have stuck like an arrow in Paul's mind. We we understand and we understand that at this moment that this relationship that God brought into Saul's life must have impacted him immensely because it is brought up and it's put there for us to say, hey, This guy by the name of Saul, who's about to turn the world upside down for Jesus, had this beginning relationship. Now, it's not a normal relationship. In fact, it's a relationship that was kind of ended by Saul. But the message that Stephen left that day must have pierced like an arrow and would not go away. I don't know about you, but you might have had one of these sort of relationships in your life. 
before you chose to give your life to Jesus Christ, before you even stopped, said, you know what? I am not a follower. I don't care. Look, I was curious, but I was not, I, I wasn't seeking him out. And yet there was that person. My dad used to tell me that was how he gave his life to Jesus Christ was by someone who he, 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 my dad would tell the story like this. He'd say, you know what, James? He said, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, he said, I wasn't looking for it. He said, in fact, he said, my, my mom and me, we were out at one of our relatives' house playing cards one night. The guys were all down in the basement. They were playing cards. And, and just at the top of the basement stairs, there's a little house. And my aunt's house, you could just right up, and at the top of the stairs was the kitchen, and it sat right there, and right at the bottom of the stairs was their card table they were playing. And my dad said, as we were playing cards, one of my mom's friends had just given their life to Jesus Christ, and she was so excited that she was telling my mom about becoming a follower of Jesus. But then she made these comments, and she made this word, and she, she said, you know what? I so am in love with what he did for me and I wish there was something I could do to show him how much I love him and I feel so inadequate. Now, the funny thing is is that this lady was not talking to my dad. She had no intention of talking to my dad. It was not not one of these things where, hey, Gaylor, let me tell you, it was just she was trying to share this exciting thing with my mother And my mother wasn't interested in coming to Christ. She was just listening to her friend tell about her story. And yet something about that night stuck a cord and stuck an arrow into my dad's heart. And he said later that night as he went home, he just said, you know what, God? I know what you did for me on the cross. And and I accept it. I'm inadequate too. And he said, I don't know what it was about her saying that, but something about it just struck a chord in my life. You see, the relationship that Stephen started with Saul was not a relationship of, hey, let me come be your friend, Saul. It was a, not a, hey, let's sit down with coffee and cookies and, and let me explain to you my faith. In fact, what was going on is that Saul was just simply saying, Hey guys, we know what's going on. Here's my life. Let me live it out in front of you. And I'm not ashamed of this Jesus. This is what he's did for me. And something about it must have stuck an arrow in Saul's life that it just hurt. But Saul was not going to give in to the story of Stephen. Saul was determined that this Jesus group was going to be put out and he was not going to have any part of it. And in fact, he began to realize that the more he stomped around Jerusalem, it began to have the opposite effect of what he was trying to have. In fact, let's go on to the next one. Here's what we read about. In Acts chapter 8, we continue the story, and this is what we're told. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house. I mean, he was literally trying to hunt them out dragging both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered, they preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. In other words, hey, stomp, and they... See, the problem is, is as Saul confiscated 
their land, their houses, as he began to put people into prison, as he began to murder people, the people got afraid. I don't want this to happen, but we're so excited. They simply left Jerusalem and began to head out to all the communities and cities and towns around. And instead of shutting up, the story just went from Jerusalem and it began to spread out like a, like a wildfire. The more that Jesus was tried to be shut up, the more that it got proclaimed. And Saul was frustrated beyond all frustration. He, he got an idea. All right, maybe if I can't stomp him out here, maybe it will help if, I, if, if people know that I'm gonna chase you down. You may run, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna find you anyhow. And so what we're told is that Paul got so frustrated that he went to the leaders and he said, look, will you give me permission to chase these followers of Jesus Christ out to the other towns around us? I'll, I'll go out there and we'll start bringing them back to Jerusalem and, and we will make sure they get what they deserve. And they were quite happy with this idea. And so they gave him permission and he began to head out to the communities around to drag these Jesus followers back to Jerusalem so they could charge them. On his way to Damascus, a town just outside of Jerusalem, he, he kind of had an experience, though, that what we're told is this. You've all heard of the Damascus Road experience. Well, Saul was on his horse when we're told a bright light literally shone down and somehow knocked him off, whether it startled the horse and knocked Saul off whether the light literally just stunned Saul so bad that it knocked him off. We don't know exactly how it happened. All we know is that somehow it knocked him off, and as he got up, he was blind. He couldn't see anything. The, 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 that experience, it blinded his eyes. The only thing is, is that while he was down there, he heard this voice. And we're told that everyone else heard it around there, but they couldn't see where it was coming from. They heard this voice that basically said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We know that at that moment, more than likely, and I'm just going to surmise here because we don't know this for a fact, but I'm imagining as that voice comes down and, and God says to Saul, Saul, you, you just heard a message from Stephen. You know what he said. You know the truth that he, it's there. You know it. Saul, why are you running so hard? Saul, why are you persecuting those who, who choose to give their life to me? What is going on with you, Saul? And whatever it was, we know that Saul at this moment put his hands up and says, God, I'm, I'm, I'm not running anymore. I've been doing it for so long. I can't do it anymore, God. I'm done. I, I surrender. I have tried to stomp you out. I have tried to shut you up. I have tried to keep you silent. And the more I do, the more you just, you just get out there. God, I'm done. I surrender. I choose to follow you. And what we know is that the guys who were going with Saul, they led him into Damascus and they basically dropped him off and said, well, you've, you've kind of figured out yourself. You're blind. I don't know. We don't know what to do with you. Maybe this will go away over a couple of days. I don't know. But as Saul was in Damascus, he's got a problem. 
He has chosen to follow Jesus Christ. The only problem is, is that now that he's chosen to follow Jesus Christ, nobody wants a thing to do with him. Why would you go and, hey, you, you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what kind of trick is this? Is this just some way so that you get to know all the insides of who's given their life to Jesus Christ so that you can come in and kill them? I don't think so. And we know that the second relationship that God brought into Saul's life at a moment when Saul needed him the most was a guy by the name of Ananias. God says to Ananias, hey, go into Saul. Help him get his faith journey started. Ananias goes in, he talks with Saul, and he baptizes Saul, and he begins to introduce him into the church. And Saul begins to talk with others. Hey, guys, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Here's what he's done for me. And we begin to understand that he stays around and begins to give his life to following Jesus Christ. You see, in Paul's life, there's an Ananias who stepped in in Paul's faith journey at the moment Paul needed it. There was a Stephen who challenged and left some messages that, that began to stir in Paul's life. But that was all it was. There was an Ananias who came in at a certain time who said, you know what, Paul, God is doing something in your life and I need to help you get it started. Let's, let's, let's go. But these relationships were God relationships. I don't know how else to describe them because Paul did not seek them out. In fact, he was trying to do the opposite. He was trying to quiet these sort of relationships. He did not seek them out. He did not go out looking for them. He didn't sit down and try to give a cup of coffee and a cookie with these people. He was trying to stop. And, and originally with Stephen, he wanted him quiet. Ananias, God brought in at that moment. It was a God thing that just when Paul needed him at that stage where I needed him the most, Paul would say, God brought in Ananias and helped me get a grasp of my early faith. All of us have these relationships in our lives. You have had someone who has stepped in at the right time, at the right place, at the right moment, who just knew what to say to stop and encourage you. You didn't seek it. You weren't looking for it. In fact, if you had your way, you'd have kept going quietly along your way, doing your own thing, but God brought in that person and turned your world upside down. You can't plan those relationships, though. They're not up to you. They're up to God. But here's one of the things. In Paul's faith journey, the biggest relationship that changed and influenced Paul was not one that was simply just a God brought in. Now, I'm sure God had something to do with it. But it was because Paul placed himself in the right place. As Paul was in Damascus, as he was there kind of in that church, as he was beginning to build his faith and as things were beginning to happen for him, he, was, he, ha he had a problem. That what he started in Jerusalem, that, what he, that which he was trying to do was stomp out the Christians and the believers and the followers of Jesus Christ, it didn't stop because Paul stopped. In fact, they just simply hired someone else to do what Saul was doing. And pretty soon they came after Saul 
how can you do this to us, Saul? If you're going to do it, we're going to come after you and we're going to put you to death. And Saul needs to take off. And so Saul flees Damascus for his life and he heads back to Jerusalem because where is the people who know about Jesus the most at? Where are they still at? Well, they're still in Jerusalem. The disciples are still there. They're not leaving because of persecution. The early church that had started in Jerusalem. So Paul says, well, I need, I want to go back to where it started. And so he heads back to Jerusalem. The only problem is, is they still want nothing to do with him. Let's pick up the story the way we read it in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. <laughs> this is an understatement. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Look, don't, 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 no, no, no. We, we hear, we know who Saul is. Don't, don't come around here. The door's not open. We're not unlocking it. You can say all you want to say. You can pretend all you want to pretend. We don't believe you. Why would you do this? Why would you turn your life around 180 degrees? But there was a third relationship that came into Paul's life that literally influenced Paul more than the other two ever did. Let's keep going. Verse 27. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. It seems like while Paul was in Damascus, he did something. He ran across somebody who influenced him more than anyone else. It was a guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas is this guy who comes in, and he's the one who has to introduce Saul to Apostle Peter, Apostle John, James, the brother of Jesus, to that early church that was there that, that Paul had been so trying to stomp out. It is Barnabas who steps in and says, guys, no, you don't understand. I've been there. I've been with Paul. I have literally walked beside him these last few months, these last few weeks. Let me tell you what's happened in Paul's life. And because of Paul, or because of Barnabas, Paul's life goes on to change the world. In fact, this guy by the name of Barnabas, when they go to send Paul out on his first missionary journey, guess who they send him out with? Oops, let me kind of rephrase that. When they decided to send Barnabas out on the first missionary journey, guess who they decided to send with Barnabas? You see, we look at it now and we see the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. In fact, the first missionary journey was actually Barnabas and Saul was sent with Barnabas. It wasn't about Saul, it was about Barnabas. Barnabas came in and Barnabas is the one who encouraged and pushed and prodded and says, Paul, we can do this. And together they became a team. The guy who was in Paul's life, who literally helped Paul change the world, who literally was the one who said, Paul, we can do this. Let's, let's go out there. And somewhere during that first missionary journey, we see it change from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was in Paul's life, and I'm sure God had something to do with it, 
But he was there because Paul had placed himself in the right place. The relationship that built Paul's faith and encouraged him was not an accidental one. It was because Paul placed himself with other followers of Jesus Christ who could strengthen and build and challenge and encourage and inspire. And when Paul would begin to have a doubt, they could say, hey, Paul, we saw him. Hey, Paul, remember when on that road to Damascus? Hey, Paul, do you remember that guy by the name of Stephen and could continue to push, prod, encourage, and inspire? And it wasn't because it was an accident. It was because he was in the right place. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us this. Let us think of ways to motivate one another in acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, and especially now, as you see, his return is drawing near. We are encouraged to put ourselves in a place where we will be strengthened and encouraged, motivated in our faith, pushed and prod and encouraged and inspired. It is when we do the together that our faith can be strengthened. Your faith needs others in it. Your faith by itself is like a little ember. If you've ever been out by the campfire and you pull one of those little embers out and you pull it away from the fire, what happens to that ember? It glows for a little while and it begins to darken. It's hot for a little while, and as you just leave it by itself, it cools down, and it cools down, and it cools down. Your faith, which is not put together with others who are also followers of Jesus Christ, will have a problem sustaining itself. We need each other in order to encourage one another to do what is right. If you want your faith to succeed, if you want your faith to sustain you, if you want your faith to have value when the tough time comes, you need to place yourself with others who are also on the same journey that you're on. And yet here's what we find. What happens when we become discouraged? What happens when we become lonely? What happens when we start having doubts about our faith? What do we do? We begin to separate ourselves from others and we begin to say, you know what, I'm so discouraged right now, I just need to be alone. I've had people tell, you know, Pastor, I'm just so, I'm so down right now that, that I just need to be alone with God. And I love the way that we sometimes put that little spiritual slant on it, like when I'm alone, I'm gonna be with God. And the reality is, is that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to a togetherness. Because together, our faith is made whole and complete and stronger. You need, and I need, others in my life who will poke and prod and challenge and encourage and inspire, laugh, cry, and push me to something better. Look, I need to close because we're, we're already over. But here at Milestone, we do purposely do some things 
that we do it specifically. When you walk in the door on a Sunday morning, you might notice there's a guy by the name of Dave who stands at the door and Ezra stands out there with them. And sometimes Chris is standing out there. We specifically have them standing at the front door for a reason. And, and yeah, it's to kind of help hold an umbrella for you when it's raining. But it is so much more than that. It is so that as you come through, you can stop and you can shake their hand and, and you can begin to say, hey, hey, Dave, how are you doing? Hey, Dave, how about them Argos today? Ezra, how are you doing? Ezra, what's going on? They're at the front door because you know what I want you to do? I want you to begin to stop and say, you know what? There's always these guys with a smile on their face by the front door. I know who they are. It's It's Dave. I don't know anyone else's church, but Dave stands by the front door, and if I want to talk football, he can talk football with me. Ezra, man, if I want to talk football, Ezra knows football, he'll sit and he'll chat my ear off, and you know what? That's what we want. As you walk in the door, you know what else we do? We put a little coffee bar up there, and there's always donuts, and there's coffee, and we do that not because it's the greatest coffee in the world, because honestly, it's pretty nasty, but we don't tell anyone that, Okay. But we put the coffee and we put the donuts in the back for a reason. It's not because we think we have the best coffee and we just want to sell you on coffee. It's because as you grab that cup of coffee, we hope that you will bump into someone else who's sitting there also getting a cup of coffee and a donut. And you know what you begin to do? Hey, hey, Bob, how are you? Oh, 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 did you hear about so-and-so what happened this week? And we begin to build relationships because our faith journey is made better with someone else. This is why we encourage you so much to come to church. And it's not because we have the greatest worship leader, even though we do. They do awesome. But it's not so that you can hear the greatest worship music. It's so that you can begin to be together. You know what? We encourage you to come to church not because the, the, the preaching is so awe-inspiring, even though we strive to make it useful. It's because as we come together, there's an idea of together. Our faith is made complete. Our faith is made whole. Our faith is encouraged. Our faith is inspired. Our faith is pushed when we have someone to laugh with, to cry with, to stop and help and listen to us sometimes. When I don't even really know what's going on, but I know what, if I go to church, there's always Jerry who's going to smile at me. He's going to talk to me. There's Barry. There's, and we can keep going on through, can't we? Because church is about together. There's a reason why we come together, and I always try to push and to promote and to stop and say, you know what? We have house groups. Is it because the teaching is so awesome and you're going you're gonna to have your minds blown by all the teaching? No. It's because when we get together, we do a together. And together, our faith is made stronger. By itself, our faith grows cool. I'm not saying we lose faith. I'm not saying that you don't have faith. I'm just saying that when you try to do faith by yourself, all alone, I'm just going to stay at home and I'm just going to read my Bible by myself, our faith grows cool. 
Because there's no one to push. There's no one to prod. There's no one to put their arm around me when I'm struggling. There's no one to laugh at my poor jokes. There's no one to stop. And you know what? It's the together that builds our faith. I love the music. Personally, I love the teaching. I love it when Todd gets up in here and and I can hear perspective from a different way than what I've seen it. And and I I love that idea that together, I, I love it, but that's not what it's about. It's a part of it, but it's about the me and the you together walking side by side. I wanna ask three questions. As we get ready to close, I've gone too long today and I really do apologize, but I wanna close with three questions. So if you're out there online, I want you to look at these with me. Or if you're in here this this morning, just just stop and listen and, and kind of go through these mentally. I've got three questions I wanna close with. Number one, who was the great influencer in your life when you were younger? Now, I just want you to kind of think about it. Who was that person? Was it a teacher? Was it a football coach? Was it a music teacher? Was it someone that you met in college? Who was that person who kind of flipped a switch for you in a certain direction? What was it about their life that did it for you? And I want to encourage you, if you get an opportunity, I would like for you to kind of talk this out with someone near you because it's in that talking it out that we begin to say, wow, I can't believe what they actually did do for me. It's a way of saying thank you for their influence in our life. So who was the great influencer in your life when you were young? Number two, who was the primary person in your life that encouraged or inspired the beginning of your faith journey? Was it a parent? Was it a friend? Was it a neighbor? Was it the pastor? Was it the youth pastor? Was it a Sunday school teacher? Who was it that in your life was that primary beginning influence in your life? And I do want to say this. Think about what was it that challenged you? Was it what they said or was it how they lived? We're all different and we're all wired different and whatever it is, something inspired you to choose to start a faith journey. Number three, and here's the last one. What person of faith is helping you in your walk with Jesus Christ right now? Because a faith journey that is strong, that is going, that is moving, is not lived out alone. It is lived out with others. And so who in your life is inspiring you? Maybe there's, maybe there's a... a, a TV pastor who's just, they're teaching, maybe something's going on that's just, hey, maybe you have a spouse who has really just been encouraging you. Maybe it's just friend at school. Maybe there's a friend at work. Maybe, maybe there's this person. I just, who is that person in your life that is inspiring your faith journey now? If there's not one, Maybe it's time to find a place to put yourself with some others so you can find someone who will encourage it and inspire it. Let's close in prayer. Father, this morning, we have gone way over time and I, and I just, Lord, I am excited by the idea that you designed us to do life together and, and Lord, you designed church not just for the awesome music and not just for the preaching and 
Lord, but because you wanted us to do life together. You called us a family because you wanted us to do life together. You didn't want us to be alone. You wanted us to do life with others. You encourage us to move others and to push others and to have others push us. Thank you, Lord, that you stopped and you gave us Paul's life as an example. You, you let us know his story. And in his story, we can begin to see our own story. And though we may not necessarily be able to turn the world upside down like he did, Father, we might be someone who is just needing a Barnabas in our life right now. We might be someone who needs an Ananias to kind of step in and get us started on our faith journey. And so, Father, I just pray. Help us to recognize those who are influencing our faith in our direction. We want to say that we love you. In your name we pray.